When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 8th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Justice returned to work last week. As you know, Helen McEntee made history when she became the first ever member of government to take maternity leave in April. The Minister returns now to complaints from an unhappy police force. She'll be meeting sergeants and inspectors in Killarney today who will tell her planned Garda reform is unfair on them at best and at worst probably unconstitutional. The Minister no doubt will also give attention to a shortage of judges that could prevent six murder and rape trials from proceeding today alone. And the Minister is also said to be working on legislation making non-fatal strangulation in in a domestic violence incident, a new specific criminal offence. Minister Helen McEntee is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, we've uh, some pressing local issues uh, that we'll probably concentrate on more so this morning. Uh, but welcome back uh, in this very strange circumstance. Uh, and indeed, uh, you've uh, a very busy agenda, uh, no doubt, uh, a full plate at this stage uh, to come back to. Absolutely. Look, firstly, it's good to be back. Uh, good to be on your show again. It, it almost feels as though I haven't, hadn't left. Um, but as you say, a lot of issues happening at a, a local level, but also a national level. And today I will be travelling to Killarney to meet um, with members of Angarda Siakana to discuss, I suppose, what, what uh, plans we have for the year ahead, to discuss what their goals and their objectives are. And obviously, I think we share many common goals and objectives in making sure that our communities and our towns and our villages and our streets, that people are safe. Uh, You've mentioned a number of things there. Maybe uh, one is that I'm hoping to bring forward new legislation. This is in conjunction with the Garda Commissioner around a new offence of non-fatal strangulation. And for people who maybe aren't sure what that means, um, often in domestic violence cases and situations, non-fatal strangulation is 
something that happens that is often a precursor to something even more violent and we've often seen this you know, progress further where somebody has been killed um, and at the moment there isn't a standalone offence. I want to bring this forward so that there's absolutely no confusion if somebody finds themselves in a situation where their partner or somebody that's known to them um, strangles them but obviously it isn't a fatal incident, they aren't killed by this, that they can come forward, that they can press charges and that there is an outcome to support them. So this is something that we're looking at bringing forward. It is already an offence under uh, the non-fatal offences against the person, but it's not specific. So that's that's just one thing that I'm working on and I know would have the support of the members of the Gardaí. Um, All of the other issues, I think you'll you'll understand that Mm. it's about working with the Gardaí, trying to find the right solutions here. Their job is to keep people safe. My job as Minister to make sure that the legislation, the oversight, the policies and the funding is there to support them to do that. Are you willing so to I, revisit that bill that the Gardaí have a, a problem with, the Policing Security and Community Safety Bill? So it, it's not finalised is what I would say, so I'm still listening. Um, I'm still open to, to working with the associations, with the Garda Commissioner. You have also the Police Inspectorate, the Authority and the, the Ombudsman. So I, I'm still engaging with them and I spoke as recently as a few days ago with the Garda Commissioner and we'll meet with him in the coming days. And of course, as you said, I'll speak with the, uh, some of the, the agencies this afternoon and the, the representative bodies. So, I, I, you know, there's a report there that has set out clear recommendations. Of course, my objective is to implement them um, in the best way possible so that we have correct oversight, that we have support for the Gardaí and all of those things. Um, so, you know, very much engaging with them. It's not a closed door. Um, but obviously I want to implement this legislation as quickly as possible. It's a massive, massive piece of legislation that's going to take a significant amount of time to go through the houses. So the sooner I can publish it, the sooner we can get moving and obviously the, the sooner we can see it implemented. Okay. Much more on that, uh, I'm sure, throughout uh, the day. Uh, we've been talking for a, a long time locally, Minister, as I'm sure you're very much uh, aware about uh, the future of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Uh, what can you say to people this morning about the future of that hospital with an emergency department and with ICU beds? Well, the first thing that I'd say is there has been no change to Navan Hospital since this topic has come up and you're right it's it's 2010 or 11 that we have been discussing potential changes to Navan Hospital under the small hospitals framework and this was before I was a TD but you know my colleagues before me Damien English my dad included myself now since then we've been very clear what we want if there were ever to be any changes is that there is a better health service provided Um, and you know any conversations that have been had any levels of engagement uh, with anybody, be it clinicians, HSC or ministers, we've made that point very clearly. There have been no changes to Navan Hospital. In fact, any, if anything, services have built up. There's been no downgrading. It, it has improved over the years. Mm. But you know and that in July, Minister, the board at the HSE decided to close the emergency department and said uh, in its communication to staff that that would mean that there would no longer be a requirement for the ICU beds. So no change has happened, and I want to be clear with people, Mm. no change has happened to Navan Hospital. If there were to be any changes, we need to be convinced, myself and my colleagues and others, that this would provide a better service. We've been asking for that for years. We've had many meetings where, where, you know, again, the small hospital framework has been discussed. And I have been clear that we need to understand and to know if there were to be any changes that we would have a better health service. So there have been no changes to Navan Hospital, if anything. No changes, but but no guarantees, Minister. Is that right? 
Well, no, I have been given a clear guarantee from Minister Donnelly and he's, uh, I think of his... Uh, that this has been paused, that the decision made in July has been paused. Uh, but there's no, there's no guarantees for the long-term future of emergency and ICU in Navan. Well, no, the commitment that has been given to me by Stephen Donnelly is that unless we can very clearly see that there would be a better service if there were to be any changes and I have not sat down with anybody from the HSE, I've not sat down uh, with anybody from uh, the various different hospital groups or Minister Donnelly and we hope to have those meetings in the coming weeks. If there were ever to be any changes, they would only be on the basis that this would provide a better health service. What that looks like or potentially would look like, I don't know because I have not been shown nor have I been convinced. The commitment that I have from Stephen Donnelly, however, is that there will be no changes that we need to see, um, you know, what a service looks like for this uh, county and for the region. And my goal and my objective is that we have a better health service. I mean, we had a march recently where the, the headline was Save Navin Hospital. Navin Hospital is not going anywhere. People of Mead uh, have a fantastic service there. It has improved over mm. the years. It will continue to improve. And if there are ever to be any changes, um, obviously, we are going to be guided by our health experts, um, but we need them to, to, to tell us what it is that needs to happen. If it needs to happen, they need to explain it to people exactly uh, what the service would look like. Um, and to date, that has not happened and I've not seen uh, anything to, to, to say, you know, that, that, that anything is going to change. Okay, uh, Minister, let's uh, talk about drugs. If we can, um, you probably will remember or know that the Duns brought heroin to Dolphin's Barn in the 1970s and when uh, the reign of uh, the Doug's, uh, Duns uh, drug gang uh, came to an end, they said, if you think we were bad, wait till you see what's coming after us. And uh, it seems as though there's a very stark prediction today that if you thought uh, the heroin epidemic in the 80s was bad, watch what's coming now, which is a crack cocaine epidemic, which is already being felt in West Tala, apparently. And uh, the reports... Uh, on this are exceptionally disturbing, uh, but familiar to a large degree as well, but uh, disturbing in that uh, it's uh, particularly women who are vulnerable uh, to this uh, and children uh, with increased public order problems, intimidation, open dealing, violence and serious mental and physical health issues, increased suicide rates, child protection concerns, increased poverty, self-neglect, forced prostitution and homelessness being reported on in the Irish Times today, which talks about kids 10 and 11 years of age uh, getting involved and by the time they're 15 and 16 they've bags of drugs worth 40 and 50,000 euro. The gangs are moving into people's houses, addicts' houses. They call it cocooning uh, and uh, force people into prostitution in order to sell drug debts and so on. Uh, And that uh, undoubtedly is a story that's going to be told over and over again as this crack cocaine takes hold. Uh, We've had our fair share of problems in this part of uh, the world. And Minister, you uh, commissioned a a report into how to tackle all of this uh, with Vivian Guerin and the 72 Guerin recommendations are now the subject of a board uh, which has been charged with implementing those recommendations. What can you tell us about all of that this morning? Well, Michael, unfortunately, you've just outlined uh, what has been happening right on our doorstep um, and communities that have felt hugely fearful over the last number of years where gangs have essentially taken over um, their their communities and Drogheda has been particularly hard hit 
over the last number of years. Now, the Gardaí, I have to say, have done a fantastic job in recent years in dealing with this issue, but they need more support, and in particular, communities need our support. The Vivian Gearn report, as you said, outlined quite a significant number of recommendations, everything from the need for new infrastructure, support in education, new types of legislation, uh, and so on. And so a board was established, um, having this uh, this document was brought to Cabinet, and, and I want to thank Heather Humphreys, who obviously had taken over in my role and continued this work with local communities. A very clear commitment was given by government that any recommendations, any asks by the community in Drogheda and the surrounding areas coming into County Meath as well, that they would be prioritised in every single department. So the board has been established. Uh, there's now subgroups within that board that, be, that are being established uh, which very much highlights the various different issues that Vivian Gearan highlighted in his report. Uh, and work is beginning immediately. And I met the board last week. Um, they are very committed to progressing this, to, to engaging and working with the community. Um, we have an, in, uh, an, an individual who has to be appointed um, to implement this, essentially, and to work with the board to implement all of these recommendations. And I hope that that person will be appointed in the coming days, um, weeks, at the, the most, Okay. And their job that's as that's well three, four. That's three, four months on since the establishment of uh, the implementation board, and we're looking at two years on, over two years since uh, the murder of Kim Mulready Woods, which prompted the original scoping exercise. Well, look, it, absolutely, it takes a bit of time for things to get established, but we have moved to make a number of changes already. So some of the recommendations have already been implemented. So around education, particularly linking in with some of the schools that have been hardest hit, mm. there have been changes, additional staff members mm. provided, some yeah. of the organisations, and yeah. I've discussed this with you, the Red Door and others yeah. have already been provided with funding. Mm. And obviously... No, not, not, not on the, the, the scale that Guerin uh, recommended. Uh, I think €70,000 was given to the Red Door out of dormant funds. And the recommendation is uh, that there would be core funding, uh, an increase of 150000 every year. So to date, the Red Door has been given, um, and I just have to, to be clear on the figure... It's about 87,000. They'll receive another 10,000 before March. This is what they have asked for, so this will fill a number of roles. And then next year we will seek for the full year. So this is, again, taking into account, as you have said, this is not the full year, taking into account the full year, what it is exactly they need. What my objective, though, is, however, dormant account funding is funding that people apply for on a yearly basis. It doesn't give the likes of the Red Door clarity that they need, that they will get this funding on a yearly basis rolling on so that they can plan ahead. So we're giving them the funding that they've sought mm. to date. We will give them more funding. We've applied again through the dormant account for next year. But what I'm looking to do, and some, sorry, and, and the remainder of the funding will be through the HSE. So that will be the full 150000 But what we don't want to do is every year say, where do we find this money? How do we get it for them? So my own department is looking at our own victims of crime funding, which uh, pays for staffing in organisations, and we're changing it to a different type of model where it's on uh, a biannual basis or a, a multi-annual, multi-annual basis so that people can plan ahead. So I appreciate that they, they haven't gotten the full 150000 yet. It's not what they have sought. Um, but anything that they have asked for, they have received. And you are committing sure to that now, I think, by the sounds of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And what about the Family Addiction Support Network? FASN uh, uh, has uh, been on the brink of closure. Again, that's an organisation that is engaging with 
the board, but also with the HSE. So you'll appreciate the Family Addiction Support Network. It's very specific in providing a health service for people. So they're working with the HSE and the HSE obviously being represented through the board and um, the Department of Health having given a clear depart- given a clear commitment uh, at Cabinet that funding will be prioritised. That is happening there. So any of the organisations that come to us or come to the board or say that they need funding, that will be prioritised. And, and okay. I want to give that commitment that that will happen. Mm, that you will keep FASN open. You will fund them uh, to the extent that uh, they need in order to provide the services uh, that are, are obviously very, very important. Absolutely. And I think maybe one thing just to, to say to people, because I know, um, you know, some people have asked, well, we don't know what's happening. This hasn't been communicated to us. Um, the individual that's going to be hired in the coming weeks will hopefully start the process of engagement, potentially develop a website, um, which will essentially allow people to go online to look at what uh, funding is available to, to be able to see what's happening, who's received what kind of mm. support. This will be important not just for the organisation, but it, for local It, it will be hugely important uh, because, yeah. as you say, the Guardian have been doing a great job and the addiction services uh, do great work and you're committing to funding them. But we don't want our children arrested and we don't want them in need of uh, addiction services or uh, older people uh, for that matter. Uh, and diversion is undoubtedly a big part of what is hoped to come about as a result of the work uh, that began uh, with Vivian Guerin. Uh, what has been done uh, in terms of the local schools suspending or expelling children? Or what has been done in terms of trying to improve race relations locally? Because these are a couple uh, of what would seem uh, more straightforward problems uh, that could be taken on now. Well, these are all issues that the board will deal with. So I've mentioned a number of things that were, I suppose, done immediately. One of them being, and you're, you're talking... But nearly about, a year on from uh, the Guerin report, isn't it? Well, look, we're, we're, we're about six months on, maybe a little bit after from that. From the implementation, have, yes. But the, the board have only met for the first time in the last three weeks, and I appreciate people will say, well, how has it taken this long? For me, it was always important that we took the report, that we set out what could, you know, yeah. how how we could achieve the recommendations in this report and that there was a very clear plan and that's not preempting what may or may not happen because this is a live document if the community says this isn't working we need something else or we would like you to now look at this are you that's hoping for somebody to come with a, a vision minister um, or maybe a multitude of people to come with their vision of how they can positively influence uh, the direction that young people take and apply for funding on that basis? Or have you got a vision or has the board got a vision or have there been applications for programmes that might do that? So, you know, I I think reading Vivian Guerin's report, um, the most inspiring thing to me was the community itself and their vision for their community. There are wonderful people within the town and surrounding areas and the counties of Louth and Meath and Drogheda. They have a vision of a town that is safe, that their young people don't live in fear of uh, being targeted and brought into gangs, that they don't have the issues with drugs that they have. And they very clearly relayed that to Vivian Gear and many of the recommendations that he has set out, that is their vision. That is that community's vision. And so they will be part of this implementation. A lot of the recommendations are asked that they have put forward and if they decide that there's something else that they need then we will listen the board will listen and they will be very much part of that process 
some of the things that have happened to date, um, they have been maybe easier to move quickly to provide funding, you know, the, the 15,000 that was provided for Money More Consortium. This is to help move on plans for a community hub that have, you know, essentially yeah. sold in recent times to make sure that we have that community centre for those people to provide potentially a multiple of different services for our younger people and for older generations. You have some elements that are more longer term mm. in dealing with racial issues, as you've mentioned, or with diversity within the community. Um, and some of that is not just about money, but it's about how do we put a better structure in place and, and support within our schools. So schools have already been provided with some additional level of support, but I know that they're going to need more. And again, that's something that the board will look at. So this is a, a living, breathing document. Um, I am 100% committed to it. And, you know, whose vision is this? This is the community's vision. And it's about implementing that and making sure that, that they are front and centre. OK. Uh, just to conclude, if we can, Minister, we've had reports of uh, people who have been sleeping on the streets in Navan in what seemed uh, to be... Uh, very difficult circumstances uh, to understand. Uh, and one of the reasons is that there isn't uh, a wet shelter in, in the town. Uh, but it's not the only reason. Uh, it's to do with out-of-hours uh, and addresses. And uh, we heard of a, a young girl, 18 years of age, uh, who had to sleep in the streets because she hadn't signed on in the county. Uh, she was homeless in Navan, but had come from Dublin. Uh, we've heard of people uh, who couldn't be assessed because of the time they report of... Uh, being homeless uh, and uh, different problems like that which seem terribly bureaucratic to a a large degree. Uh, Have you had time to hear uh, or get more detail on any any of these reports or have you any thoughts on how to solve some of these problems? Well, firstly, I I hope you'll appreciate that I won't maybe comment on any individual case, but, um, you know, any person or one individual or, you know, whatever number of people um, rough sleeping on our streets is, is one pe- person too many. And we have a policy, which is Housing First, which is there to try and support people, particularly those where there are complex situations. Nobody finds themselves sleeping rough um, for no reason. And mm-hmm. there are often many challenging scenarios and situations. And a rapid housing, housing First won't do anything for you if you're stoned or drunk at, at six o'clock on a Friday evening. So what I would say is, and, you know, the vast majority of people who present to the out-of-hour services or who, who need those services late at night, uh, and I think this has been revised by or reviewed by the, the local authority recently, most of those people are known to the services. So you have very few circumstances where somebody will present themselves at 12 o'clock at night, or 2 o'clock in the morning. Most of those people will present at an earlier stage in relation to a wet hostel. You know, this is where you deal with people who have drug addictions, where you have um, potential alcohol problems. The model itself is changing, so we don't have a wet hostel in need. However, what we do have is the housing first the housing first policy. This is where you have uh, one bed units. Generally, you try to keep people in a one bed unit so that you can provide that wraparound support. And Mead County Council has a contract uh, with Kildare and Wicklow with Peter McFerry Trust. Hmm. Once a person comes in, once they're presented, they have these complex needs. But the minister, as you know, we're hearing of people who the services. As you know, we're hearing of people who've spent the night uh, sleeping uh, on footpaths um, because, I mean, there just hasn't been the time uh, or, or the wherewithal to provide accommodation uh, along the lines that you're suggesting. There, uh, are you opposed to the idea of a wet hostel? 
Well, it's not the policy and I don't necessarily think it's the right way to go. So, it, I mean, it's, it's been explained to me and I would support this, that if you have a wet hostel, you often have people who come in. There are quite a number of people who are obviously, you know, facing the same type of challenges. Um, that in itself can create a problem where you have a lot of people. They are in emergency accommodation and they leave and often you have an open door uh, or a revolving door type situation where somebody finds themselves in these wet hostels multiple times. The housing first policy is where you provide somebody with a bed, you put those wraparound support services in place and we have a contract with the Peter McFerry Trust in County Meads to do that and that they are actually given that support to then move on to a different house. So often somebody will move from that into other accommodation and then be provided with the HAP support which is funding essentially to help them stay there and to, to, to try and, you know, to... to to move away from the situation they find themselves in. So for me, Housing First, that is the policy that we need. There's a target under the new uh, policy that we would have 1,200 uh, Housing First tenancies. So this is the one-bed unit um, between 2022 and 2026. We had had a target of just over 660 by the end of this year. We've already provided almost 700 and there's still two months left. So, I mean, those targets can amend, they can change, but anything that we have... Um, set out to do around providing these types of supports we're doing and for me it's not about a one night bring this person in and then send them back on the street again how do we bring them in how do we put them in the house how do we provide the wraparound support services so that they don't end up in this situation so I'd much prefer see that in need than a wet hostel because I think it actually does more for the type of scenarios that you've just outlined at the beginning of this because it's it's heartbreaking to hear of anybody on the street sleeping rough and we need to try and make sure that the services actually prevent that from happening. Okay, Minister, we have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Welcome back, as I said at the outset, and thank you for the time that you've given to us as well today. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Helen McEntee is the Minister for Justice and the Fine Gael TD for Meadeast. Michael Reid on LMFM. Now, independent councillor in Navan, Alan Laws, who has uh, been dealing with many of uh, the people uh, we discussed uh, with Minister McEntee, who have found themselves sleeping rough on the streets, uh, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Alan. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I I don't think there was anything for you to get too excited about there. Not really. I mean, you you put your finger on it, Michael, but when you talked about, you said to Minister McEntee that housing force doesn't do anything about people sleeping rough on the streets and you know we look at we look at we have to look at the roots into homelessness and if you look at your own health uh michael we look at preventative health measures like giving up smoking you know eating out from the drink and eating good healthy diet we need to look at the preventative preventing homelessness and we look at the roots into homelessness now immediately at the moment eviction actually is the biggest reason in need for people moving into homes then we have addiction then we have mental health uh, issues and then we have young men and women exiting for care. Now, when you look at addiction, we have a lack of services. When you look at mental health, we have a lack of services. When Even when you look at young men and women in foster care, when they reach 18, Michael, they're put out there. I mean, you look at the trauma that some of them kids have gone through from being taken away from their families, taken away from their friends, placed in foster care. They're meant to fit in with the family rather than the family fit into them. And the minute they turn 18, they exit that, but all the supports are gone. Now, if, if you have an addiction problem, uh, Michael, that addiction is made worse by being homeless. If you have a mental health problem, that mental health problem is made worse by being homeless. 
and, and we should look at putting uh, supports into place. Like you were talking about the addiction services later on. I mean, we've heard stories, there's reported recently there in the Irish Times um, by a GP dealing with the situation in Dublin. And basically what you're talking about, it, people enter homelessness usually from poverty, usually from adverse family effects when they're young, like the likes of young kids uh, uh, experiencing trauma, major trauma, uh, and when they have to be put into foster care. But then when you look at after that, we have we have people actually with mental health problems uh, going to addiction services looking for treatment and they're sent away and they're asked to get treatment for the mental health problem. We have people with, a, with a, uh, you know, mental health problems uh, going to the uh, HSE looking for help and they're told to get their addiction services, uh, their addiction problem sorted. Again, being homeless increases all of that and we're not dealing with that. And then when we get there, like you say, when we get into homes, the people that are in dealing with sleeping on the streets, when Minister McIntyre mentioned about a revolving door, that's what I'm actually dealing with at the moment because I'm seeing the same faces all the time. These are sick young men and women. They're placed in B&Bs with very well-meaning owners, with very well-meaning staff. They're totally ill-equipped to deal with these uh, people going in. So what do we get? Again, their illness takes over and I face them coming back out on the streets again. And that's why I call for a wet hostel. And and I don't want the wet hostel like we have in in Dublin, Michael, where homeless people, I volunteered on the streets of Dublin a lot of times, and homeless people are afraid to go into some of the hostels. The reason being, the hostels are understaffed. Uh, They're not safe. And at the moment, I only heard there last week that we had a young man that was sent into a, a, a hostel. And now it's, the system has changed over the last while. Now when you're allocated a hostel, you don't have to make that phone call every, every night, Michael. You're allocated mm-hmm. to one hostel. But this man got badly beaten up in that hostel. And he was still told to go back the next night. So we need a hostel that not only provides a roof over the head, we need a hostel that provides services. But what we want to look for here, we want to look at a few successes. That, that wraparound service that the Minister yes, was talking that about. that wraparound service. About, we that, need them in place in the there. hospital. Now, <laughs> the Minister has the power. The Minister has the power to actually make sure that the hostels in Dublin, starting with them, they're already there, to make sure they're well, they're fully staffed, with trained people, put the wraparound services there. Now, I work in the health service, Michael, and... and when you look at Norway, Norway has one of the best systems for homelessness in Europe at the moment. They don't, don't nearly have zero homelessness on the streets. And the reason is, basically, they, they improve the quality of emergency homeless services. Now, I work in the health service. We have HICWIT that, that uh, comes in and inspects us all the time. Now, you should see the fear on, on the hospital manager's faces when HICWIT's coming in because they make sure standards are up to scratch. Fatima Ferry is called for these hostels to be inspected on a regular basis by a group called HICWA. So we know, Michael, that if people go there, we might clear the streets of Dublin if they had safe hostels to go for. Okay. That calls for, that calls for investment. All right. And the I'm minister's the only one that can kind of, at, government, at the government table, call for that investment. I'm out of time, Alan. I have to leave it there, but uh, I'm sorry, okay. sorry that it's so short, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us no on, on the program this morning. Independent Councillor Alan Laws. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk uh, to Jackie McKenna, Project Manager with uh, the Family Addiction Support Network. Good morning, Jackie. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. If I'm not mistaken, Minister McEntee said she's absolutely committed to providing the necessary funding to both the Red Door Project and to yourselves in Fasson. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Um, uh, well, first of all, thanks, Amelia Michael, uh, for having us on. I'm absolutely delighted to hear and I have full faith in Minister McEntee in her commitment 
to uh, the implementation plan and to making things work for the northeast region. Um, absolutely delighted to hear that uh, she has that um, drive and commitment to making sure that the red door and ourselves are kept open. Um, I'm not sure. I know that she said that it we, uh, that we're funded. We will be funded through the HSE, and that that was the recommendation in the Gearing report that the HSE um, uh, contact us and liaise with us and all the rest. Um, there hasn't really been any liaison done, uh, although we have been um, um, assured that uh, the funding has come out, and um, although we will have to tender for it. So it's open to everybody nationally, and um, hopefully that we will be um, successful in that tender, but uh, there is nothing guaranteed. Okay. Uh, the Minister said, uh, I think this morning, that she hopes uh, to guarantee core funding for both yourselves, Infasen, and the Red Door. Um, I will certainly be um, <laughs> chatting with Minister McEntee and uh, to make sure that that will happen because over the past few months we've had to resort to asking the community to support us through fundraising to keep the doors open while the government um, dealt with red tape and bureaucracy that's involved. So um, the last thing anyone wants, us, wants to do is to close the doors on a service that has been up and going and developing for the last 20 years that has built up relationships with um, agencies and families on the ground and government departments. That takes time, as we all know. As the Minister said, it takes time to build up these things and to get structures in place. So it would be such a shame to see that um, all disappear. So um, just another thing, um, uh, the subgroups are working on the implementation plan because we're working with the Gardaí on uh, shared action around the uh, drug-related intimidation reporting programme. So um, although things are happening behind the scenes that maybe we people in the public might know about, but that is happening because what's happening actually within our own organisation is that um, over the past few months that we've been working with families who are being intimidated and who may have been driven out of their home because of fear and everything else and um, who are left homeless um, and family and community are reluctant to take them in because of that fear of uh, bringing trouble onto themselves which is very understandable but that family is left in isolation, unsupported, and uh, no emergency accommodation, no access to emergency accommodation because it's the weekend or it's after four o'clock in the evening. So that's an emerging trend that really needs to be taken into account by the implementation board um, to support those families because if you can uh, vision uh, being a member of a family with maybe a 20-something-year-old that's involved in drugs, and you have a 9-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 15-year-old, and your house is visited by drug gangs, and um, 
you're put under severe pressure and you have to leave your home because of the fear of um, violence or uh, something that will happen to your children. Uh, you can imagine the isolation and the absolute terror that that family must be going through. So it's imperative that families, and we are all, all raising families in what is now become the normal drug culture. That's everyone's kids, grandkids are growing up in this culture. So it makes sense for the fam- for the government to put in measures to help protect the well-being of um, families and communities, not okay. just in the northeast, but across all of Ireland. All right, Jackie. Well, we'll check in with you from time to time, but uh, we have to leave it there because we're short on time today. And thank you indeed uh, for really joining us. It, thank, thank you thank very you. much indeed. Jackie McKenna, Project Manager with the Family Addiction Support Network. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, just some comments uh, coming to us uh, this morning. John in touch uh, telling us he worked uh, through the 80s and 90s in prisons. And one thing that's absent all along is an approach within the prison service for dealing with serious drug dealers. He says uh, there's landings full of them in the prisons and all the wonderful things he was hearing from the minister on the programme today about what is being done in communities is one thing. But when these people get out of prison, they go back to their communities and they do it all over again. Their networks are being run from prison, nothing being done to prevent these prisoners doing what they are doing when they're on the inside. Thanks for that, John. Uh, David in Navin saying, Minister McEntee seems convinced that Our Lady's Hospital in Navin will not be downgraded, but why did the Minister for Health use the word pause? Why did he not say it would never happen? Uh, Thanks uh, for that, uh, David. And a different David, uh, this David is in Dundalk, also on the phone to us, listening uh, to the discussion uh, about homeless people sleeping on the streets. He says there are hotels uh, that the state have control of for accommodating people. He said he did a job in one of them recently and it was only half full. Could they not be used for homeless people as well? A stopgap until they get permanent accommodation. Thanks, uh, David, uh, for your call to the programme. Thanks to anybody and everybody who's been in touch with us so far. If you would like to share your thoughts with us, as always, we'd be delighted if you took the time to get in touch. Now, if uh, you have been in hospital recently, it's quite possible that you'll be asked uh, about your experience Let's uh, hear about this. Rachel Flynn is HICWA's uh, Director of Health Information and Standards and uh, the Director of the National Care Experience Programme. A very good morning to you, Rachel, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. You'll be contacting people two weeks after they've been discharged from hospital, and this is something that you've been doing every year for a number of years at this stage. Yeah, so this is the National Inpatient Experience Survey, and we've run the survey in 2017, 18, and 2019. Um, We're running it again this year, so anybody that has been discharged from one of our public acute hospitals, there are 40 public acute hospitals in Ireland that have spent more than 24 hours in it, are over the age of 16 and have an address in the Republic of Ireland, will be written to after they've been discharged, two weeks after they've been discharged, inviting them to participate in the survey. Generally speaking, do people respond yeah, we get a, an excellent response rate every year. Um, so about roughly 
thousand um, people respond on a yearly basis. That's roughly just over 50%. And when you compare that internationally, I, I think our colleagues in New Zealand get something like a 30% response rate. Our UK colleagues get 40%. So we get a really good response rate. Mm. And it's not just actually the numbers responding. There are three free text questions in the questionnaire as well, asking what was good about their experience, what could be improved, and any other comments. And some patients have responded with, you know, eight pages of, of comments on that. <laughs> I'm and, sure they um, have, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, quite yeah. detailed and very kind of engaged population in terms of the response rate. Right, okay. Uh, if 15,000 respond and 15,000 don't, uh, would it be fair to assume that the 15,000 who don't respond were happy with their experience? Um, I, I suppose that's one of the reasons that I'm coming on to the radio station this morning is just to encourage everybody to respond. Um, it's really, really important that we get a good understanding of patients' experience in our hospitals in Ireland. Mm. Um, they do lead to improvements, so we've identified areas that need to be improved. One of the areas that have been identified over the years was you know, the discharge process, so when patients are going home. Sometimes patients ha- had indicated that they felt that that was quite rushed. They didn't have time to prepare, you know, um, in terms of even transport, getting from the hospital to their home. Mm. Um, And also they were they got a lot of information kind of the last day um, and they just didn't have that time to absorb that information and ask questions. So what a lot of the hospitals have done in the in the last number of years is that they have started planning that discharge when the patient comes in. So if they know they're going for a certain procedure or an operation that they give them the literature around that. So they have time to read that or time to pass that on to their, their, their partner or their next of kin. And they can read that and ask questions throughout their hospital stay. So we actually saw an improvement in, in that whole area of discharge um, in the last number of years. Okay, Uh, so uh, there are complaints uh, that are legitimate and there's merit in looking at those complaints and improving uh, the standards and I guess that's uh, the objective. Yeah, um, I suppose this is measuring experience. Um, So if if a person needs to make a complaint, there is complaint procedures within the hospital. Mm. This is really about, um, you know, were you treated with respect and dignity? Um, Did you, if somebody communicated with you, did you understand that? Um, Did you have an ability to, or a time to ask questions um, to a doctor or nurse? So it's really about trying to measure the experience of, of patients passing through. And the whole idea is that, you know, this feedback is from patients. It's not from HICWA or the HSE or the Department of Health. It's actually from patients back to the local hospital. Mm. And I have to say the local hospitals have, you know, received that very openly um, and have made changes a, as a result. But it's, it's trying mm. to measure that experience as they pass through the hospital. Do you, do you get a lot of complaints, though, that don't have merit? Uh, I mean, I think the health service gets an awful bad press and anybody I speak to uh, personally uh, who's been uh, through the health service usually says they were wonderful uh, the nurses were fantastic uh, and you hear nothing but compliments the standard of care couldn't have been better and so on uh, but if you pick up a, a newspaper or listen to a radio station uh, you'd swear we were living in the third world Yeah so generally in this survey what we've found um, over the last number of years that 85% have either a very good or good experience um, and 15% saying that they had a poor to fair experience. So again, as you said, rightly said, the vast majority are having a good experience, but still patients that are passing through the hospital are having a fair to poor experience as well. And the whole idea of the survey is to really tease out, well, what was it? Was it that, you know, you weren't given enough information? Did you get enough opportunity to ask questions? Um, were your procedures explained to you correctly? Were you treated with respect and dignity? Really pinpoint in, in those hospitals, where are the areas that we need to improve on? Um, so again, it's about trying to look at that 15% that 
kids that are having that fair to poor experience and try to um, to improve that. Now, I would say over the last number of years, patients, I mentioned there at the start that some patients wrote, you know, several pages about um, about the hospitals. They're very hugely complimentary towards the staff. Um, they understand that the staff work sometimes in in conditions that are not favourable. They talk about the staff going over and beyond, um, you know, in terms of their, their duties. They talk about, you know, having very kind staff, not just in the nursing and doctor's mm. profession, but also in the porter, porter mm. catering and other disciplines as well, that it is, it is a team effort to deliver healthcare. So they, they acknowledge those roles within the hospitals. Even, you know, they talk mm. about the admin staff being very kind to them, you know, when when they came into the hospital as well. So again, it really acknowledges where there is good, but also where improvements need to be made as well. Okay, very good. Uh, You'd like people to respond, uh, and it is a question of responding. Uh, You'll be contacting people if uh, they've been in hospital. Yeah, so we will be writing out, and we have done so already during the month of October. There will be a first reminder and a second reminder going out as well. And the closing date for all these surveys is the 17th of December. So we would encourage anybody that has received one of those invitations to participate in the survey. They can complete the the paper document or they can go online and do it um, on the website as well. But we would encourage as many people as possible to participate because it does lead to improvement. Improvements. Okay. And the whole idea then is to publish those results for each of the hospitals um, mm. in, in mid-April next year. Okay, so you want to hear people's experience, whether it was a good experience or a bad experience. Yeah. It's their experience yeah, and you'd like to know what it was. Exactly. Very good. Okay, Rachel, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for Thank joining us this much. morning. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. That's uh, Rachel Flynn. Hick was uh, Director of Health Information and Standards and the uh, Director of uh, the National Care Experience Programme. Uh, now, we're going to talk uh, about uh, covid uh, briefly because uh, obviously uh, we're coming to the peak of this terrible fourth wave and it's impacting on so many people. It's impacting on people who are vaccinated but terribly so on people who are not vaccinated and uh, the Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Hoolan has uh, been talking uh, about why people should get vaccinated. It's giving you excellent protection against the likelihood of being admitted to hospital, the likelihood of being admitted to intensive care or having more severe effects of that infection. So for most people, it will turn what might, what could be a more severe infection into a, in, into a milder illness. Uh, it, it also gives some benefit in terms of reducing the levels of transmission, particularly at a population level, but perhaps not as much as we might have hoped from the initial clinical trials. Uh, but it is having an effect on that. But it's really important to fact, and the primary objective of the vaccination programme was to give protection against severe infection for individuals who received the vaccine. And it's really working very well and it has held up very well in that regard. We're now going through the programme, as we know, of boosting and offering a third dose to people who've been vaccinated uh, over the age of 60. Uh, and we're, we have already vaccinated those over the age of 80. And we're beginning to see some encouraging signs in terms of the levels of protection, but also the levels of infection uh, among those age groups that have received the booster dose. So again, the importance of coming forward if, if it's time for your booster, come forward and get that booster. And if you haven't been vaccinated, one in five people between the ages of 18 and 30, two in five people between the ages of 12 and 15 have yet to be vaccinated. It's really important for you and for the risk that you might pose in terms of transmission to other people who are vulnerable, particularly in your family, your loved ones, for you to come forward and get vaccinated. If you haven't come forward, it's not too late. The HSE wants to see you. Uh, and there isn't going to be any, let's say, challenge or question as to why you haven't come forward until now. People will be happy to see you coming forward and becoming part of our 
our vaccinated pool of people. It would be wonderful if you haven't been vaccinated. As the Chief Medical Officer says there, you decided to get vaccinated. Come forward and get the vaccine for the reasons he's just outlined. And if you have been vaccinated, uh, he's also been saying you shouldn't be mixing with people who are, are not vaccinated and pubs and restaurants shouldn't be letting them in. And they should be asking for the COVID certs. And he's been appealing to you to leave a pub or a restaurant if they're not asking for COVID certs and to restaurant and pub owners to make a point of making sure that everybody who is on their establishment has been vaccinated. It is okay, for example, to go to a pub or a nightclub. We need to be mindful that the more we do of that, the greater the risk we have. And we all individually need to try to cut down our level of risk and reduce our levels of social contacts uh, over the course of um, uh, the next number of weeks. In addition to that, we're focused very much on how each individual sector can offer protection for both the staff and the customers of whatever service uh, uh, that it might provide. So we're talking about the hospitality sector or schools or universities or retail environments, public transport. Each one of these environments has arrangements in place uh, to apply public health guidance, to offer protection to individuals using those services. Uh, and we need to encourage, if you like, continued high compliance of those sectors. We know, for example, that perhaps in every setting that people are going out to, they're not being asked, for example, for the COVID pass. Well, we need you as an individual to understand that an environment where you're not being asked about these things or where hand-washing facilities are not present or it's evident that mask-wearing is not as it should be, you should look at that as a risky, riskier environment than, 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 than it should be. And you should leave, feel empowered to leave, and certainly not go back to visit. And all of that would help to encourage compliance and adherence in the sectors. So if we can have people in the opportunity that they have to be out and about, because all of society is open, conscious uh, of how much of that they do over a time period, have those sectors complying at a high level with the public health guidance, and then each of us in indiv- as individuals as we move around, complying and adhering to the basic public health advice. We hope the combination of all of those things would help to uh, reduce transmission. Uh, and, and, and bring us back into a, in, into an improved situation in terms of the force of infection in particular that we're experiencing at the moment. OK, that very strong message uh, from uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Hoolan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Young people are particularly interested in climate change because it'll impact their future more than those who are making the decisions. And the leaders are making decisions about how to mitigate against climate change but why is it they're not consulting with the young people? The most affected people in the most affected areas still remain unheard. And the voices of future generations are drowning in their greenwash and empty words and promises. But the facts do not lie. And we know that our emperors are naked. To stay below the targets set in the Paris Agreement and thereby minimizing the risks of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control, we need immediate, drastic, annual emission cuts unlike anything the world has ever seen. And as we don't have the technological solutions that alone will do anything even close to that, that means we will have to fundamentally change our society. And this is the uncomfortable result of our leaders' repeated failure to address this crisis. At the current emissions rates, our remaining CO2 budgets 
to give us the best chances of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius will be gone within the end of this decade. And the climate and ecological crisis, of course, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is directly tied to other crises and injustices that date back to colonialism and beyond. Crises based on the idea that some people are worth more than others and therefore have the right to steal others, to exploit others and to steal their land and resources. And it is very naive of us to think that we could solve this crisis without addressing the root cause of it. Right, that's uh, Greta Thunberg uh, speaking to 25,000 young people in Glasgow about the blah, blah, blah taking place at COP26. Now, the commitments uh, that are are made there from an Irish perspective come under the Climate Action Plan. And here, young farmers say that they've been excluded from that plan and uh, that uh, this is a mistake because they are the ones who will be most impacted by it. Let's speak to Shane Fitzgerald, who's uh, the chairperson of Macron Affirmers Agricultural Affairs Committee. Good morning to you, Shane, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, had you an alternative view? Good morning, Michael. Thanks very much for inviting me onto your programme. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is, from a young farmer's point of view, that we, we want to be at the forefront of this of the decision-making. We don't want to be left out because, as you have mentioned already, we're going to be the ones who are going to be here, we're going to be the ones involved in, in agriculture and, and in the rural communities for, for many years to come, so we're going to be even more affected by it. I suppose from a farming point of view, an agricultural point of view, we always see ourselves as custodians of the land. We always want to leave the farmer in a better gener- in a better place for the next generation. That goes without saying. So for farmers, and particularly young farmers, not to be at the forefront of that decision-making is... It's, it's not right. We need to be at the forefront of that. We need to be involved, especially particularly coming from a young par- farmer's point of view. We've constantly said that when we've spoken to the government and, and to Minister McGonagall, that we do have we have the appetite to make change. We'll adapt to the change faster when you're talking about embracing new technologies and mitigating the climate change um, uh, protocols. But we, we are the ones who are going to adapt to changes faster. Because that's just, as long as human nature doesn't make a difference. You believe in it. it. You, you believe in it. You believe uh, that. We believe, just, we believe in it, but I suppose not only now. We're just. It's, it's maybe it's, it's more. It's easier for us, I suppose, to change for older people. Maybe and we'll probably be the same when, in a few years' time when we're a bit older. It's very hard to change your attitude, to change your mindset, to learn new things. But I, I've, I've every, I've, I've every, um, I suppose, belief in thinking that all that all farmers will. But I just believe that young farmers will be just faster. So. We really need to show, throw the kitchen sink at supporting young people to make these changes. We need to support them as much as possible mm. and embrace these technologies because, as I said, we have an appetite there to do that. So we need to be allowed to do that as best as possible. So and talk about what, things. What, yeah, people, what, what would you encourage young farmers to be doing or to be looking at doing? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's many things. And particularly, I'm a, I'm a dairy farmer myself. I make my own. My own dad here, we make 100 cows in Waterford. But we're still a, we're a family farm, but... As part of, I suppose, what we're doing, what a lot of many young farmers are not going to farm are doing, we're embracing all the, the latest technologies, whatever whatever is there, we adapt to them. So, for example, the low emission slurry spreading, we have, you have less ammonia emissions up into the atmosphere, protected urea, again, you have less leaching into into waterways, and um, we include clover into our grasslands wards, so that takes in nitrogen organically rather than spreading artificial um, chemical nitrogen, 
We have multi-species wars, again, which are really good for soil structure mm. and, again, reduce the need for chemical, uh, chemical nitrogen. Solar panels on our farm is another example and more energy-efficient um, methods of, of heating water and cooling milk and that sort of thing. So that's just, that's just to name a few and there's, and there's many more. And, and young farmers are embracing that. And I suppose the thing is we know from the carbon budgets and, and figures that have been done by KPMG that by adapting all these technologies, even if everyone adapts these technologies, the most are told that we can mitigate emissions by is 18%, and we've been set a target of between 22 to 30%. So if we have to go above and beyond that, without the introduction of new technologies, we're going to have to reduce the herd, which is not what any farmer wants to do, especially for a young person. Mm. We, need, we, we don't, no one wants to stand still, but we need to see kind of potential and see, see growth in any career you're in. You want to see growth. We don't want to be shackled again like we were before with quotas. So I think that's an important point to and make. And what about your cattle, Shane? Are, are, are you doing anything? Uh, uh, we're hearing about seaweed and different ways of feeding cattle to reduce uh, the amount of methane that they produce. See, again, that's, Michael, coming down the line as well, is, is, is um, seaweed additives to reduce methane. So at the moment, we don't have access to that on farms. So it's, it's that sort of, I suppose, innovation that we need more funding directed towards. And that's that's a couple of years away from being probably adapted at farm level. I know they're using more parking. And that is the, that is the problem, isn't it, Shane? And the question is, is there the time to wait? Uh, would you consider yeah. diversifying? Well, that's that's the problem, we, and we don't we don't we don't have time, and some of these takes time, take time. But I, I think there will be definitely there is room for for people to diversify, I and mean, that's going to work in certain situations. Maybe people might go down the, the route of organic, but again, are the markets there for that? And that's something, again, that needs to be pushed. I know the government obviously have committed $256 million to, to the organic sector to maybe to try and develop markets there and maybe try and push people down that route a little bit more. But for some, in some cases, the diversification may not be an option for farmers, and it's, it's, it's more so that they're probably going to have to work off-farm off jobs. Um, so I suppose there is there is the option there for for some people, but but not for for everyone. I think from my own point of view, and I think from a lot of I suppose young dairy farmers' point of view, we are trying to do a lot of improvements in our I suppose our breeding and our genetics. So to by trying making the cows yeah. more efficient and open the beef side things, they're trying to bring forward the the age of slaughter as well. So by by doing that, you're actually not reducing the the herd numbers, but you're it's effectively doing the same thing, I suppose, because you're finishing cattle a little bit sooner than you normally would, mm. maybe by three to four months, so it has the same, um, I suppose the same results as, yeah. as re- reduced emissions in that, in that sense. So. Because there's less cattle on the planet at, at any given time. Uh, harding yeah. a, 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 farming a, is a hard job at the best of uh, times. Will uh, actions yeah. uh, to mitigate against climate uh, action uh, um, make it less viable? Yeah, I think that that's what the worry is, Mike. I think if we have to go to extreme levels of the, the cuts and the mitigation up to 30% and beyond, beyond especially, unless these new technologies come down the line, and I suppose we're kind of living in hope, which is the, is the worry for a lot of young farmers, if these new technologies come, we could get a silver bullet and we could meet these we could meet these reductions without reducing numbers and without affecting incomes. But at the moment, I know from the, the, the KPNG report that, that 50,000 Jobs could be on the line, um, and that's even that's that's by a thirty percent um, reduction in emissions of agriculture. So those kind of figures are worrying, and it could, it, it could have a, a, a sort of a four billion hit on the rural economy. So those kind of figures are are worrying, like I suppose for young farmers. And you see those type of finger, figures, it doesn't really entice you mm. into the industry. And I suppose maybe there's something I suppose just a couple of points to make as well that maybe concerns young farmers and, and farmers in general. I suppose is at the moment like we're not getting any I know we, we account okay for 33% of greenhouse gas emissions but we don't get no we get no recognition for carbon sequestration and 
we all know that soils and, and trees and hedgerows, they all take in carbon as well from the atmosphere. But again, the technologies aren't there at the moment to actually measure that. So we, we know and some farms are actually probably carbon neutral and some car- farms are actually probably taking in carbon, especially the more expensive farms. But until we can actually measure that and have verifiable data, which it's, it's happened at the moment and on, on, on some farms they have LiDAR mapping and they're, mm. they're introducing carbon testing. So that's happening now, but it won't be until probably five years down the line that we'll actually have these figures. And like you said, is we don't have time for that. We don't have the time. So we need to just to push resources and to push funding in into those sorts of te- technologies to, to drive that on forward. Like Because the last thing that we want in this country, from young farmers, I think from, from any person in this country, should be saying the same thing, that we don't want um, food production to, to be outsourced to other parts of the world because we're the most sustainable. And Vince McGonlogue has constantly said this himself. Mm. We're the most sustainable, um, I suppose, agricultural system in the world. Maybe New Zealand you could compare to maybe with the grass-based, but um, there's nowhere else really in, in any other parts of Europe even. Like we're the most efficient for dairy production, and we're, I think we're third on the list for, for beef as well. Okay. Um, for and that's an, that's an efficiency point of view as well. So I think we have to be very conscious of that. It doesn't make sense that if we curtail production here, that it's going to be outsourced to maybe South America and I suppose that's going to cause carbon leakage leakage as they call it so okay. um, that is a worry for us I think really Alright Shane we'll leave it there for the moment but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning good to talk to you Shane Fitzgerald is uh, the chairperson of Macron Farmers Agricultural Affairs Committee Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, what if uh, the British government trigger Article 16 of the Withdrawal Agreement? And I think if they do, they will come to regret it because this runs along other things in Northern Ireland, like the possibility of the destabilisation of the power-sharing executive if the DUP withdraw from it. This is a very difficult and dangerous road to go down. It's not just a question of trade difficulties. It could. We've seen what's happened in Northern Ireland before. It could become much worse. They should be very, very careful about this. This is silly politics to placate a few extreme Brexiteers and the price will be paid by businesses, people in Northern Ireland and the reputation of the United Kingdom. But I think they would say, if they were here, if Lord Frost were here, he'd say, it works. The French back down on fish. The EU back down on lots of the controls that were being used. Oh, our clip seems to have run out. Uh, that was John Major, the British uh, f- uh, Prime Minister, former British Prime Minister, was uh, speaking to BBC Radio 4. Now let's speak uh, to Karen Coleman, who's uh, the editor of Europarl Radio, which reports on the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Karen, good morning to you and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, it's getting more like not a question of if but when. It seems almost inevitable at this stage. It seems to be the case, and indeed John Major in that interview that you quoted or that you played there, Michael, I think he went on also to say that he expects that Article 16 will be triggered. And if you look at lots of the British media reports on this, the, the, the feeling seems to be definitely that the UK is going, the government is going to trigger Article 16 after the COP26 climate conference finishes um, at the end of the week. I mean, that definitely seems to be the expectation unless something that we're you know, not clear about happens, whether David Frost may change his mind, maybe Boris Johnson may finally believe this is not the route he wants to take at this time because of the implications. But right now, certainly the expectation seems to be that the UK government is going to trigger Article 16. 
And what does that mean? What will happen if they do that? <laughs> well, I mean, mm. obviously, <laughs> it is going to create ructions um, because the EU um, and, of course, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney was interviewed about this over the weekend. And he, he responded saying if the UK government triggered Article 16, then the EU would respond in what he called a very serious way, Mm. and that one is contingent on the other. The EU and the UK depend on the protocol being operated in the UK. Now, none of this will happen overnight, um, and I think in any case the British have to give notice of the fact that they're going to trigger Article uh, 16. A month, I think, isn't it? One month. Mm -hmm. It's It's not a lot. Mm. But the expectation then would be that the EU would indeed respond. I mean, obviously, they can't do nothing. And the question is, what way will they respond? Um, If, you know, Coveney seemed to indicate that the the trade and cooperation agreement that was brokered very painfully between the EU and the UK after years of negotiation on Brexit, that that may then be called into question and whether the EU would threaten maybe sanctions or tariffs after that. Now, again, none of that would happen immediately. Mm. And obviously, I think an awful lot of efforts would be made to try and placate uh, the British and to see whether anything else could be done in, t- in terms of the problems they have with the Northern Ireland Protocol and the problems that they are creating for trade coming in from uh, Britain into Northern Ireland. But this now, is the I- starting point, isn't it? This is uh, possibly just the beginning uh, uh, and that you'd be looking at tariffs uh, and a trade war as a, a result, uh, but uh, that would only go on for as long as people have patience to try and find a resolution. Yes, and of course patience is, is wearing very thin um, within the EU, we've already seen uh, the problems between Paris and London over the fishing rights of uh, French fishers in UK waters. Um, so there wouldn't be an awful lot of patience in terms of protracted talks with the UK on trying to placate them and see if there's any further um, maybe accommodation that can be made in terms of the problems they're having with the implementation of the protocol. But I think the EU would argue that they gave as much as they could give when they uh, came around with their proposals in October. And there's been three weeks of negotiations about those proposals. The EU, I think, would argue that, you know, they gave a loss in terms of looking at some of the problems that were caused with inspections on food and animal products and medicines. They wanted to create this express lane, which would make it easier for goods to come from Britain into Northern Ireland. Um, But the UK are saying that those proposals don't go far enough and of course the feeling is here that really what they want to do, the British is get Mm. rid of the role of the European um, uh, Court of Justice Justice Mm -hmm. in all of this and the oversight and if they trigger Article 16, if they try and rewrite uh, parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, would they try and ditch then the ECJ's role over all of this? Now, Mm. it's highly unlikely the EU will accept it but that that is the suspicion right now that that, that's the thinking uh, by the British government in this. Right. Uh, and Minister Coveney said uh, there comes a, a point uh, where you're pushed beyond uh, the idea of negotiating uh, and uh, the EU may turn around and say enough is enough. That's the end of the whole thing uh, because uh, they can't deal with a partner that is not acting in good faith. Absolutely. And of course, you know, what the EU would argue is that they've given a lot, as I said previously, in terms of those proposals, they went much further than many might have expected. And of course, there is the danger that 
if you keep giving, the British side will just keep taking and they'll push things to an extreme limit. And then that will call into question deals that were done under the trade agreement. The you know, And to what extent would the British maybe mm. then demand more in terms of that deal? And that is the danger, of course, that you know, a deal is a deal. It was an international agreement that was signed. But if you start reneging on the terms then the danger is it could start to unravel. And I I suspect that we probably will see quite a strong stance coming from the EU. We're Mm. already, as you quoted Simon Coveney, and of course Taoiseach Michal Martin was very strong about this maybe just about a week earlier, about the dangers of rowing back too much and that if pushed too far, the EU would have to start coming back with strong retaliatory measures. So I don't see Brussels really giving in too much more on this because I think that is the danger then the the British will just keep demanding more Where will the border be? If there's no checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland uh, well then um, there's no European border Well yes and that's the problem and then are we going to see a situation where you've no checks and goods coming from Britain into Northern Ireland and then potentially moving into the Republic um, and into an EU state and, and, and there lies all the difficulties mm. and that's why it was always so difficult to try and get um, a, a Brexit agreement, a trade deal that would be able to deal with this very, very tricky problem. So um, you could go back to having a, a border on the island of Ireland or you could annex the whole island of Ireland uh, and uh, make uh, the border uh, at uh, the European mainland? Well, I don't. I mean, we repeatedly hear how there cannot be a border again on the island of Ireland. And I think certainly, you know, on the EU side, they would be horrified if, if that is to emerge from this difficulty at the moment with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Maybe what you have is a situation where things get suspended. I mean, there aren't. A lot of the checks are suspended at the moment in any case because of the problems with the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Maybe there might be a way to try and see if they can set aside the ECJ. Perhaps it would be a huge move if the EU was to do this. But again, you do run the risk of giving too much, I suppose, to the British side, and then you don't know further down the road what else they might be demanding. Um, but I think a border on the island of Ireland w- would be very unacceptable from so many quarters. But it is very tricky. What do you do then with mm. those goods in the long term coming in? Um, and of course, you know, there are all the problems with supply chains being disrupted in any case. And of course, this is going to create even further problems. And there's Christmas coming down the road and all mm. of that. There are no easy answers and no easy solutions to this, Michael. It's, it's, it's very difficult. Now, maybe some leeway will be gained or some progress during the talks. They're continuing again this week. And Shevchevich is to meet uh, David Frost in London on Friday. Um, maybe they can achieve something. But definitely the smoke signals coming from the UK seem to be that triggering Article 16 is almost inevitable at this stage. Okay, Karen, thanks as always for joining us uh, this morning. Karen Coleman is uh, the editor of Europarl Radio and I think we can hear uh, a little bit more of uh, that interview uh, that uh, John Major gave uh, to BBC Radio 4. I think it would be colossally stupid to do that. To use Article 16 to suspend parts of the protocol would be absurd. 
This protocol is being denounced week after week by Lord Frost and the Prime Minister. Who negotiated the wretched protocol? Lord Frost and the Prime Minister. They negotiated it. They signed it. They now wish to break it. And if they do that, firstly, it will be seen as very bad faith indeed. It will be seen as irresponsible. There will undoubtedly be severe consequences. It would add to destabilisation in Northern Ireland. It would seriously damage relationships across the whole of Ireland, North and South and the UK. It would erode relationships between Europe and the UK. It would damage relationships between Washington and uh, London because Washington, uh, the United States, are very much behind the protocol. At the moment, we are negotiating over the protocol with all the subtlety of a brick. What is happening week after week is that Lord Frost goes into the negotiations, he gives away nothing, he takes something from the European Union, he goes away, blames them for the fact that nothing at all has happened, and they are preparing, I think, to uh, trigger uh, Article uh, 16 after, uh, after COP uh, meeting has ended. Uh, British perspective on British behaviour. That's uh, the former Prime Minister, John Major, speaking to BBC Radio 4. Michael Reed on LMFM. If somebody is having a stroke, time is of the essence. As you know, it's crucial uh, that uh, they're treated and treated as soon as possible. But would you know if somebody was having a stroke? Would you know what the signs are and would you know how to respond? Uh, A lot of people don't, apparently. Uh, Chris Macy is head of advocacy at uh, the Irish Heart Foundation and the Irish Heart Foundation is encouraging all of us uh, to learn more about this. Good morning to you, Chris, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, 41% of patients fail to get to hospital within four and a half hours, and that is a particularly critical time frame. Oh, it's, it's really worrying, Michael. Um, the average stroke destroys two million brain cells every minute, um, and for every minute saved between having a stroke and and getting treatment, it's estimated that that will add one week of healthy living to a stroke uh, sufferer's life. Uh, so really getting into hospital as quickly as possible is, is absolutely vital. What we're talking about here is one of the most devastating diseases there is. It's the third biggest killer disease in Ireland and it's the biggest cause of acquired disability. But on the other hand, there's been some incredible um, advances in stroke treatment over the last few years. You mentioned thrombolysis. There's another even more effective uh, treatment called thrombectomy. Um, and uh, but the, the doctors can only help you if you get to hospital in time. Uh, you know, you can really have a huge impact on your own outcome mm. by getting to hospital uh, quickly. But, you know, as the figures show, um, there's a really uh, low rate of people getting into hospital within that time that the experts can help them most. And a, a lot of people recover from stroke with uh, very little to talk of. Uh, others uh, experience life changing or life ending. Uh, experiences uh, because of uh, the stroke. So what do we need to know? Uh, how uh, do you know if somebody's having a stroke? Because it's not always that obvious, is it? Um, it's not always obvious. And, um, you know, the, the, the three main um, uh, ones come from uh, that small little word, fast. And that's the small word that can save your life. Uh, F is for face. Has the face fallen uh, on one side? Can the person smile? arms, can they raise their arms and keep them there? Uh, speech, uh, S is for speech, is their speech slurred? And then the most important one, because there's no point in knowing face, arm and speech if you don't do the T, which is time to call an ambulance, if you see any one of those signs. Now, we, you know, we know that that's about 86% of the 
percent of strokes covered, uh, um, you know, with with uh, phased arm mm. speech. There are some other uh, um, um, ways that can present, like balance problems and vis- vision impairments. But you know, uh, they won't necessarily be strokes if they happen. Uh, but with the face arm and speech, it's almost certainly going to be a stroke. Um, uh, so, so get into hospital quickly. Uh, certainly, if there's sudden onset of balance problems, vision impairments, fear, headache, and that sort of thing, you also need to, um, you know, you also need to take that very seriously. But for face, arm, and speech, ring an ambulance. Okay. Um, what, what, what should prompt you uh, to look at, at somebody uh, in that light? Well, I suppose you know that that. You know, the, one of the classic presentations is the face falling on one side. Mm. You know, the, the, the it's it's you know usually a one-sided um, uh, you know uh, a, attack on your on on your on your body, if you like. You know that you know it would, would um, normally happen that way. The speech okay. can be slurred, and, and the, the, the person ha- having the stroke will be feeling unwell. I take it absolutely in all um, cases. Uh, absolutely, and, and you know. Uh, you know, with some, uh, say, mini-strokes, uh, TIAs as they're called, mm. you know, we used to call it a funny turn probably most of the time. Mm. And a funny turn can be a mini-stroke, and a mini-stroke can lead, you know, within a short space of, of time of maybe days or weeks to a full-blown stroke. So you have to take all these things seriously and get them get them checked out. And you will hear of people uh, who've had a, a stroke and uh, when... They've had a, a scan. It's discovered that they probably were having TIAs uh, and many of them over a, a period of time. That's right, and sometimes that only uh, transpires, you know, afterwards. Particularly where someone might be very old and very infirm, and they might not be, um, have been able to spot it themselves. But there's also other, uh, you know, we've uh, heard of many cases where people um, whose uh, speech has been slurred as a result of stroke, and maybe they've fallen down on the road or something, and people have walked past them. Thinking, mm drunk yeah. and um, so you know um, we would just ask people uh, to be as vigilant as they can be if it looks like someone's having a stroke and they go into hospital and it turns out that they're not that would be great news and the, um, the medical professionals there will only be too happy to tell people that they they haven't had a stroke but if you have that yeah. face arm and speech in particular uh, it is time to ring okay. and you can try to remember it by fast face arms speech uh, and then time uh, to get a, an ambulance. OK, we'll leave it there, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us with that this morning. That's uh, Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with uh, the Irish Heart Foundation. Uh, I think we'll finish up uh, today with more from Greta Thunberg. Opening up new coal mines, coal power plants, granting new oil licenses, and still refusing to do even the bare minimum, like delivering delivering on the long-promised climate finance for loss and damage to the most vulnerable and least responsible countries. This is shameful. Some people say that we are being too radical. But But the truth is that they are the ones who are radical. Fighting to save our life supporting systems isn't radical at all. Believing that our civilization as we know it can survive a 2.7 degree or a 3 degree hotter world, on the other hand, is not only extremely radical, it's pure madness. Greta Thunberg, we'll see you tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.